Welcome to the 2023 Fall Retreat. Um, it's my pleasure to um, not only welcome you, but to introduce my friend, Zach Hicks. I was thinking about how to do this earlier, and I think the best story to tell about Zach is when he wasn't even involved in this story, really. But when I first met Zach, we were at a church in Fort Lauderdale, um, I was doing some writing and some preaching. He was doing all the music and some writing as well. And we did a lot of talking about theology and worship and the gospel. And I thought to myself, this guy is the deepest thinker about worship, the most gospel-centered pastor over worship, and an amazingly talented musician it's just too bad he's Presbyterian. And we worked together a bit and loved it. And then years later, I was talking to a friend of mine, Andrew Pearson, who is an Anglican minister, and he pulled me aside and said, I'm about to hire the best worship leader in the United States. And I said, well, that's not true. Because I know the best worship leader in the United States, and he's Presbyterian. And Andrew said, well, maybe I think you might know him. He is deeply thoughtful about worship. He's fully centered on the gospel and is a pastor about worship. And he is a wonderful musician. And his name begins with Z, and ends with Ack Hicks. <laughs> and I said, well, you did get the best one. And uh, I am so excited to share Zach with you this weekend. Um, he is the author of two books, one of which everybody here who has gone through the exploration class has looked at at least some. That's The Worship Pastor, and most recently, Worship by Faith Alone, Thomas Cranmer, The Book of Common Prayer, and the Reformation of Liturgy. And Zach is um, planting Church of the Cross in Birmingham, Alabama, so you can keep him and that work in your prayers. You all know what it means to plant a church, so you know exactly how to pray for him and for his family and for that congregation. Um, you know my rule about introductions, keep it short and never ever say without further ado. So, Zach Hicks. Thank you. I'm toggled on on my end. It's a very kind introduction. Thank you, Nick. We go way back. Um, I was telling Nick and Aya when we were coming here and I was explaining to some friends who these friends are. I, the best way to describe it in a nutshell is that we got to know each other through trauma bonding. Like That's how it worked for us. We were in a real difficult ministry situation together and that galvanized our friendship and relationship, and there were just so many overlapping uh, spheres of life and shared love together. And I'm really honored to be here to be a part of this. I want to briefly outline the way that we're going to go through this. I want to take a little pause and breathe for a little bit um, with you, and then we'll get started. And hopefully my hard stop at, at the end of a time will allow for about 15 minutes of just questions and processing after every session. I've learned as I've taught to try to do less than more. Um, so I'm going to have, I have content for four sessions. 
And if I'm feeling like we're zipping through, great, I'll do it. But I have a hunch that I don't want to get through it all. And I'd rather just spend our time going more deeply. So we'll see how far we get, uh, especially with what I'm sensing your restlessness is and all those sorts of things. I also recognize that having a retreat at the end of a long week, if your week was anything like mine, probably feels really frenetic. And I would bet in this moment, I don't know if you feel very retreaty. I don't feel very retreaty. This week was hard, and, you know, especially when it's in town, you don't get a chance to sort of slip into chill mode and listen to God mode. You're just coming from whatever stressful situation is. You've come here, you've parked, and you're just trying to breathe, and it's like the, ch- the church's vibes to you are like, okay, hurry up, it's time to rest now. And you're like, I don't know if I can do that. I'm really, really weary and, and exhausted, and just need to breathe a little bit. So actually what I'd like to do is uh, simply offer a bit of a time of silence to pay attention to ourselves and maybe be honest with our, our own hearts in the Lord about what actually we're bringing here. What I hope we journey through, even at times though it'll be a little technical, is simply to become people who as a result of walking through some of this teaching, are able to receive the gospel a little bit better, a little bit more clearly in your worship that you do every week. And maybe if you engage other parts of the prayer book on occasion in your encounters with the prayer book there. So I even hope in this moment of silence here that God would give you the clear message of, I love you, I'm for you, and even this broad message that hopefully can ring home wherever you need it, need it to, it's going to be okay. So let's take a moment and offer ourselves to the Lord. And at the end of that, I'll offer a prayer. Walk us through what we're going to do and start doing that. Almighty and ever-living God, who is gracious enough not to leave us to ourselves, But by the power of your word, open our hearts in worship to you. We humbly beseech you that by the same word, which kills and makes alive, which humbles and exalts, which sends to Sheol and bids Lazarus come out, that you would be pleased now to use these reflections to make us worshipers who are always and ever mercifully shown just how much we need Jesus and generously given that same Jesus until the day when we shall be completely like him, we in him and he in us. Amen. I'm a student of the prayer book, probably by a different means than some of you in this room. For me, the love of the prayer book came because someone taught me something about the person who architected it that put me on a trail. And that trail was something I smelled, and it was the gospel. And that got me excited about what this prayer book was all about, because the question that I'd been asking for years as a pastor and as a leader in worship, especially in a tradition that wasn't bound by fixed liturgies, but in a sense could be fashioned however you wanted it, because I believed in the formative power of the good news of Jesus Christ, that it's not only for 
new Christians who are converting into the faith, but it is something that you and I grow more deeply in, in understanding and in believing. Because of the power of that to change a human being, I was asking the question, well, if, if that's God's only means of changing people, what does it mean for a worship service and life derivatively to be centered around that, that message? What does it look like for a worship service to hedge all its bets on the person and work of Jesus Christ? And what does that mean to be a worshiper who receives all that and is changed by those repetitions? And eventually I encountered Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was a guy who was asking that same question and answering it with far more knowledge, depth, and resources than I realized I would ever be able to compile for myself. So he, in a sense, for me, became the cliff notes of the answers to my own deep questions of how this stuff worked. And that gave me entrance into, even as a Presbyterian, uh, being able to serve and minister in and minister to the Anglican tradition when it came to the prayer book. It's been my area of scholarship for the last seven years is studying Cranmer, his theology, and the kind of bones and structure that created the prayer book and that brought it to us. And my big project that led to my book was doing a lot of what's called comparative liturgics, which is checking out the liturgies that Thomas Cranmer had in the 16th century that Reformer in England had and checking out what he wrote and comparing the similarities and differences. And what I found is that it's way too flat a story to tell if all you're saying is that this guy took liturgies that were in Latin and changed them into English. Because the big thing that I was taught and that I wanted to deeply discover by going into the nerdy minutiae of that was that he did not only translate, he transposed worship and his major hinge point of transposition was the gospel itself. I witnessed Cranmer and watched Cranmer filtering everything through justification by faith alone, the good news that you and I are justified apart from our works in and through Christ alone. And in a way, what I want to do is kind of open up some of that work to you. Some of it might be a little technical, but the hope isn't to to be technical with this. The hope is actually to, and I want to give you this metaphor, what I hope that you all have on the other side of these four sessions of teaching, I'll describe as what a mutual friend of, of Nick and Aya and, uh, and me, his name is Jonathan Linebaugh. He was my uh, doctoral supervisor. He's the guy who sort of mentored me in a lot of these things and taught me a lot of things that I know now. He uses this language of what I hope to give you tonight and tomorrow are hearing aids to hear the gospel more clearly so that as you go about your week-to-week worship with your liturgy, as you go about praying prayers maybe through the Book of Common Prayer in the daily office of morning and evening prayer or encountering some of these liturgies that you will encounter from time to time, say if you're at a wedding or you're at a funeral or maybe a minister comes over and offers you liturgy for those who are sick, that your ears as a result of thinking about some of these things with me, are tuned to hearing that good news. And the reason I want them tuned that way is because I believe that's what changes you. 
That's what chisels you into the image of Jesus is the story and the news about Jesus for you. So what I hope happens is hearing aids for the gospel. So I'm going to try to tease out and magnify a gospel-centered spirituality of the prayer book. This session I'm calling Open Heart Surgery, Justification, and the Book of Common Prayer. In the second session, if we're following the order, which we may not, it's going to be called Christ in All Our Senses, Justification in Holy Communion. The third one is called Repentance Every Day, Justification and the Daily Office. And the fourth one is going to be called, long one, Jesus at birth, death, and everywhere in between. Justification in birth, baptism, matrimony, sickness, and burial. So I don't know if we're going to get all through that, but that's part of the goal. And what I'd like to invite you to do as a way in toward thinking about these things is to look in your handout. And right on the top of that is an excerpt from the preface of the very first English Book of Common Prayer from 1549 that Thomas Cranmer wrote. And this is the first paragraph of that preface. In a way, this is his disclosure. He had some political pressures that meant he probably couldn't say things exactly the way he wanted to. He was probably thinking about all his different listeners here. Nevertheless, I think a lot's exposed even in this program of what he thought he was doing. And even in this, there are lots of insights for you and me as worshipers of maybe what might feel a little bit uh, a part of our tradition as Protestants who worship with the prayer book, but also might feel a little foreign. You might even hear some language that sounds like traditions other than us, or at least I'll try to tease it out that way just to to poke a little bit. It goes like this, and I'm going to read it and in a sense exposit it a little bit. And you could sort of say this is... Cranmer unpacking his theology of worship, his understanding of what he hopes that you and I experience from God when we encounter uh, worship with one another through the liturgies that he has helped architect and stitch together. He says, There was never anything by the wit of man so well devised or so surely established which in the continuance of time hath not been corrupted. That first statement and sentence is one that's often quoted by liturgical scholars. It's really interesting. Uh, One thing we, not everybody knows though, is that he didn't write that opening line. That opening line is actually stolen from someone's previous work that same century. It was a Catholic cardinal in Spain named Francisco de Quiñones. And he had done some reforming work of liturgies himself on behalf of the Pope and for the sake of the church. And he wrote a breviary reform. And this breviary reform was basically trying to reform the daily offices of the people of God so that more prayer, and actually his agenda, like Cranmer's, was to get a lot more scripture in there. And Quinones opens his breviary some two decades earlier with this line. Compare it to what Cranmer says, and you'll see the contrast. There was never anything by the wit of man so well devised, which could not later be rendered more perfect by the added insight of many. And here you have two different anthropologies. And what I mean by that is two different views of what humans are or are not capable of on their own. 
One is offering, I'll just say it, is the kind of Roman Catholic view of the way human growth, potential, and perfection can work. And the other is offering a robustly Protestant reading of the scriptures when it comes to, well, a kind of realism, maybe pessimism, about what human beings are capable of. For Quinones, his point was that, hey, we've been working on liturgies for a long time. There's always room for perfecting more, and we are all on an upward trajectory. And Cranmer said, well, actually, if we look at the progress of the church spitting out liturgies for the people of God, I actually find that over time we tend to corrupt things. We tend to make things worse than they are. And that's one of the reasons why all the Protestant reformers felt they were within the church Catholic trying to get us back to some basic uh, central truths of the scripture. And the most basic, most central thing that they felt was lost was, in fact, the gospel itself. And so Cranmer, in a kind of almost, I don't, I don't know if he's trying to be cheeky or satirical here, but he's definitely quoting this guy and choosing a very opposite way of viewing humanity. And you sort of see right at the beginning exposed, I've got a very different view of the way human beings change. And that view of the way you and I change probably doesn't involve a work from us. (laughs) It actually might involve something else because we tend to, on our own, corrupt things. So he says, There hasn't been anything by the wit of man so well devised that over time hath not been corrupted. And he goes on, As among other things may plainly appear by the common prayers in the church. So he's talking about in the liturgies we now have. There's a big mess in what we have. Commonly called the divine service, which is a wonderful phrase recovered in the Reformation for what uh, worship is. And it's even worth stopping right there. Think about the benefit of calling a worship service the divine service. What does that mean? A lot of times when we come to worship, at least in the traditions that I grew up in, I was given the impression, so the kind of implicit theology, that I was coming to offer something to God. So if I heard the word service in relationship to what happens in worship, I'm of the impression we're talking about my service to God And one of the things that was recovered in this era was calling a worship service the divine service precisely so it could be emphasized. I actually come to receive God serving me with his gospel and his love and giving himself to me. The first and original ground whereof of this service, if a man would search out by the ancient fathers, he shall find that the same was not ordained, but of a good purpose. And for a great advancement of godliness. So he's talking, he's using older English language for advancement of godliness, meaning growth. That these liturgies that the Lord uses in our lives are meant for our growth. Are meant for our, our being chiseled into the image of Jesus Christ. For they so ordered the matter. He's talking about the early church here. So order the matter that all the whole Bible and the greatest part thereof should be read over once in the year, intending thereby that the clergy, and especially such as were ministers of the congregation, should, by often reading and meditating on God's word, be stirred up to godliness themselves. So 
at the center of the scriptures is the gospel. And it was Cranmer's understanding that if a liturgy and worship services give you lots of Bible, they're always driving you to that gospel. And that gospel is the change agent for your life in your own advancement in godliness, in your own growth, in your own um, journeying toward looking more like Jesus. And the big program is, how can we get more Bible into the hearts and minds of the people of God? Here's a great prayer book stat of the original prayer books. It's estimated that two-thirds of the liturgies that you pray on a week-to-week basis are either straight scripture or scriptural illusion, which is beautiful because it means we're not necessarily inventing the words that we offer to God. We are allowing God, that that's in itself is a kind of divine service because God doesn't leave us just to ourselves to come up with what to say to him. He gives us his own word, his own way of, of talking to him. He puts on our lips those words. And so you can see at the very beginning, Cranmer's agenda is very much a scriptural agenda of giving lots of Bible to the people of God. And of all the things, it's interesting that as he's talking about this book of common prayer that he's about to kind of uh, unload on the English people in the 16th century, that his most important thing that he's talking about doesn't actually have to do with liturgical structure or liturgical words. It has to do with reading the Bible. Somehow he views that at the kind of top of what gives the gospel and changes people. Now I want to hear this, this next part because this is where it gets fun and maybe a little uncomfortable, especially for some of us if we like our worship really quiet and reverent, okay? <clears throat> so he said, uh, after the minister section, that final sentence there that begins, and further. And further, so this is the purpose in his mind of what these liturgies do with the word of God. By daily hearing of Holy Scripture read in the church, should continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God, great, and be the more inflamed with the love of his true religion. So all of a sudden, we're talking about fire and passion. And I do think that's one of the great tricks of the devil, who has, amongst Protestant traditions, pressed liturgical worship in such a direction that it seems to be totally devoid of emotional passion, content, and then given all that passion to traditions that are on the other end of the spectrum that have no sort of liturgical moorings. I mean, you think about it on the, uh, the spectrum of, say, kind of liturgical Protestantism and charismatic Pentecostal Protestantism who don't use a prayer book at all and who, quote, don't have a liturgy even though they do. They have a liturgy too. It's just a different one. But all the passion sometimes seems to be over here amongst the charismatics and then it's just common for us to think that liturgical, part and parcel to liturgical worship is something very kind of quiet and staid and unexpressive. And that's not in the mind to challenge us of the original architect of the prayer book. The original architect of the prayer book viewed worshipers as, as a result of encountering the word through the liturgy, being the more, and he's using old English language for the coming down of fire, all right, that's a great charismatic phrase that they get from, from Pentecost, the coming down of fire, be the more inflamed with the love of his true religion, or language that we might hear if we grew up in certain contexts, being more on fire for Jesus. That's what Cranmer viewed as sort of happening as a result of this 
formation. And I'm just going to leave that there, dangling at you and challenging us, those of us who are in liturgical traditions, to maybe think about how our heart and passions enter into this. And now I want to turn to the Collect for Purity. Because in my opinion, as you look at that same page, the Collect for Purity, because it headlines the communion service, and it's something that you and I were meant by Cranmer's work to hear every Sunday right at the top, in a way it functions like a neat and tidy theology of worship. And what I want to do is unpack this a little bit, precisely so every time you hear it on a Sunday, every time you hear it on a Sunday, all these images and this gospel starts to come into a three-dimensional focus. The interesting thing about the Collect for Purity is Cranmer didn't write it. That collect had been used uh, for generations amongst priests. The difference was that prior to the English Reformation in the 16th century, no average Christian ever heard that collect. Because that prayer was originally for a priest to pray privately in the sacristy or somewhere else in preparation for worship. And interestingly, Cranmer grabs this private prayer of the priest and hands it to the people of God because he believes that uh, there's this thing called the priesthood of all believers, for one. And so he really sees this. A lot of these prayers that were said in private were meant to be given to the people of God in public. So that's one thing that Cranmer does. And we are given this private prayer to publicly pray together with the minister. Again, it's the closest thing we have to a disclosure of a theology of worship. Almighty God, (coughs) to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Again, though Cranmer didn't write it, Because I, at least for me, I've read enough of him to feel his purposefulness in bringing this to the fore. And I want to ask those of you that have a little Bible under your belt, or maybe have memorized passages of Scripture because, I don't know, you grew up in a tradition that had Awana or something like that, where you were memorizing loads of Scripture. Do you hear some of the allusions going on in this text? Are there any passages of Scripture that you recall from your own mind and heart that are, in a sense, jumping out at you as you hear some of these things. And maybe just to press the trivia a little further, I'll, I'll try to emphasize some words and phrases. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Hebrews 4 12 to 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division between soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
Do you hear that powerful language? First of all, the Collect for Purity has no mention of Scripture, right? But when you hear these allusions connected with it, you're realizing, especially given the preface we just read, the aim of the Book of Common Prayer is to unleash the Word of God, to do what only the Word of God can do, which according to Hebrews 4, is nothing short of open-heart surgery. Again, if we're busy thinking that liturgical worship is just some nice staid ritual that we do and then are done with it, where we can kind of sort of contain ourselves in a box, the Lord is here to say, I have the opposite agenda. Because my agenda with you is to bring the buzzsaw of the Word of God. This is kind of graphic and morbid. To bring the buzzsaw of the Word of God. To cut open your sternum. Pull back all those bones and get straight to the center of you, to that beating heart, to that dying cancerous heart, to expose it for what it is, to pull it out and to replace it with the new heart of Jesus. In a sense, every time you come on Sunday to worship the Lord, that's God's agenda for you, to offer you heart transplant, to bring you to that place of perpetual repentance. I was reminded of all this when I was praying through Psalm 19 this past week. And if you want to pull it up on your Bibles or digitally or analog or whatever, you just want to listen to it. Listen to the way Psalm 19 does this. It took me a long time to realize the connection between the first part and the second part. Because if you ever heard Psalm 19, you're like, man, this is a This is an abrupt shift. First starts by talking about the world and the glory of God. In the second part, he talks about the law of God. Listen to this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out from his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. There's a little bit of connection here with uh, even the, if you're noticing, the kind of the way that the earth and the revelation of the world exposes you. You kind of hear that in the Collect for Purity. And then it makes a shift. Seems abrupt to us. Been spending time in nature and then all of a sudden, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They're more precious than gold, much, uh, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. <coughs> and here's more of the collect for purity stuff. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. 
So he's been rejoicing in the law, but recognizing that this very word actually sort of opens up and exposes these, what he's calling, hidden faults. Keep your servant also. All of a sudden, the psalmist is just jumping into confession. Why? Because he actually knows what this word does when unleashed. Keep your servant also from willful sins that they may not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And then something that you often hear preachers say before they preach a sermon. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The connection in Psalm 19 being made is a a grand and bold and robust theology of the word of God. Of course, the word of God, as we understand it, is chiefly, chiefly preached and known in the scriptures. But the word, according to Hebrews 4, is also a living and active, in a sense, organism. In fact, it is Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit moving and acting way beyond even the walls of Scripture. Such that you can read in Psalm 19 that creation itself is preaching and declaring a word. Yeah, we need distinctions between what theologians call special revelation, which is Scripture, and general revelation, which is the world. In a place like Romans 1, it helps make that distinction for us. But let's not forget that the world, too, is a place of revelation of God's word. And that even apart from the church and the declaration and the preaching and receiving of the word, God's word is living and active, doing stuff to people. And one of the primary things that God's word, this is why mission work is so fun. Because in a sense, when we're evangelizing others, we're going out to discover where God's work has, word has already been at work in softening and opening and preparing hearts for the good news. This is why it's fun to actually journey with someone who's not ready to receive the gospel yet, but maintaining a relationship with them simply because you love them, because you believe in stuff like Psalm 19, where God's word is living and active and does its work. And it's why when you and I come to a worship service, and we're coming in to receive all that is offered through Jesus. The word has already been working on us, even if we haven't been opening our Bibles this past week. And no, it's not an excuse not to. But God's word is so living and active and so powerful that because he loves you, he is searching you out everywhere. And in a sense, when we begin here, we're beginning by saying, God, I've been encountering you whether I know it or not all week. And almighty God, to you All hearts are open. All desires known. And really, if we were to slow down with this colic for purity and in a worship service, let every one of those phrases sink in, you'd start to get pretty squirmish really fast, right? You'd start to feel the weight of this. And in a way, you'd be experiencing precisely what is going on in Hebrews 4. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What Cranmer is trying to press on us is that when we come to a worship service, we are coming to encounter God doing a work on us through his word. And that work is, especially on the front end of things, a lot of exposure. It's meant to cut open the heart so that God can replace it with something new. Something that I also just realized this week. This is an interesting comparative liturgics thing. There's one word that Cranmer didn't take from Latin and just translated into English in the Collect for Purity. He actually changed it. 
that word is inspiration. That's not in the original collect. In fact, in the original collect, it's a different word. It's the word infusion. Now, that has to do with some Protestant Catholic debates about the way grace works. And one of the things that Cranmer wanted to do was not give off the idea that somehow grace is infused into the believer in such a way that allows the believer to stand on their own two feet and do works that would then merit more grace from God. Because that was the medieval Catholic understanding of the way this whole change in relationship stuff worked. So Cranmer had a severe allergy to the word infusion. But the fact that he replaced it with inspiration is interesting. Number one, because it's kind of redundant. Inspiration means that you're receiving the Spirit. So the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, the spiriting of your Holy Spirit. But the other thing that I suddenly saw that I hadn't before until this week when I was rethinking this, I was like, you know, this sounds like 2 Timothy 3.16, which maybe if you grew up memorizing Bible verses, you also memorize this one. And it also is a, a theology of the Word of God from here. <clears throat> For all Scripture is God-breathed, right? That's what that verse says. And I was wondering to myself, now in English translations that Cranmer had in his century, is that how they translated it? What word did they use there to translate the Greek of theopneustos, of God-breathed, which is in a lot of our languages. So I looked up what's called the Matthew Bible, which was the English translation that was under Cranmer's supervision and floating around at the time when Cranmer was making the Book of Common Prayer. This is the translation of 2 Timothy 3.16. For all scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable to teach. And suddenly I had an aha moment that I'm even more convinced that Cranmer is after a word-heavy, scripture-filled, gospel-centered way of changing us. Because this inspiration of the Holy Spirit isn't merely just some sort of charismatic filling of the Holy Spirit. It is that, but it is that precisely through the Word of God doing its work. <clears throat> it also means that I, as a pastor, have a different understanding of this verse that I often utilize when... I'm at funerals or ministering to people at the point of death or who know someone who has died recently. It's changed my perspective. This whole theology of the way the Word of God works in a worship service on you and me has changed my perspective of this verse in Psalm 116.15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I used to only think that that was talking about actual dead people. But now I believe that God also means that it is a precious and tender and beautiful process of the regular dying and rising with Jesus that happens as the Word of God works on us. For me, this has a lot of ministry implications. I've got a lot of friends who are running far from God, but God is chasing them. And in a sense, I'll just say this, this might sound a little off to you, but I think in some ways God is making their lives miserable. Or at least God is, one could say, allowing their lives to be miserable. Precisely so that they might run back to him. And my view of that is that they're in the midst of a fresh death. They're in the midst of dying. And when I read a verse like Psalm 116, it gives me great hope that, number one, the Lord really does love them even there. Even as they're going through that. Even as they're wandering. Or maybe even as you're wandering. 
even as you're experiencing some form of death in your life, that God is not callously sort of sitting there waiting for you to come back, but in fact, he views that process as tender. He weeps over it. It's precious to him. And his heart goes out. But I think the Lord, because of his great mercy, because his steadfast love is new every morning, because his steadfast love endures forever, he's the kind of God that recognizes that this death is precisely what's necessary and that will bring you back to him and back to Jesus. In many ways, what's being disclosed here in the Collect for Purity is that as you and I journey through worship, and we're going to sort of walk through the communion liturgy with your orders of worship tomorrow in greater detail, what's really going on there is that, is the kind of exposure of our wandering heart, the naming it for what it is, for not, in the language of Cranmer from the daily office, dissembling or cloaking that, stopping the hiding, stopping the running, and just being honest, God, this isn't who I'm faking to be when I come to church. This is who I really am. And then God coming to that you, the real you, not the you that you want. You know, the you that chooses to maybe Netflix over reading your Bible. God loves that you. <laughs> or the you that uh, might choose something selfish as opposed to loving your neighbor. That God loves that you. And in a way, the death journey that you're going to experience in this worship service is to peel back the layers and get to that you Precisely so, the God who views your death as precious can say to you, I really love that you, the real you. Not the one that you put makeup on and dress up nicely at church on, but the real you. That's the you that I love. Because in all honesty, that's precisely what you and I need, is that love from that God. How does this word work? I don't want to get too deeply into this. In fact, I think tomorrow I'll start with some of this uh, stuff on justification. But I want to offer just an entree into a biblical vision for how people change. Because I think that's what we're all, all ultimately asking about what this all is. And when we're talking about how people change, we are getting to eventually the place where we can see the prayer book sort of coming at us in three dimensions. So this feels like we're not talking about liturgy right now. We're talking about how people change. But the payoff is to be able to see, oh, having hearing aids for the gospel kind of thing. First of all, the biblical vision for change. This was, a, this was actually a full-blown debate in the time of the Reformation. And funny enough, whether we know it or not, it's still a debate today, probably in your own heart, and definitely amongst churches, is whether change happens from the outside in or the inside out. Jesus' view on the matter, if you go to a place like Matthew 12, kind of speaks to the answer to that question. How does change happen? Matthew 12, verses 33 to 35. <clears throat> Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, as he's talking to the Pharisees, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. 
A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Hard word, but there's an implicit order of operations here for the way we operate. You and I do things because inside in the heart, it's already springing forth. A lot of, a lot of Christianity will try to pressure us to change our lives from the outside in, to begin to take things about our behavior and modify them so that on the outside it looks more like Jesus. And funny enough, that's precisely the problem that Jesus is addressing amongst those who are religious of his day. It's what Paul David Tripp calls fruit stapling. You know, I'm this fruit tree. I keep producing bad fruit. So let's pick off the fruit. I'll go buy some beautiful apples from the the supermarket and come back and staple that fruit on. And look, a good tree. And Jesus is saying, it's the root of the matter. Until you get to the disease at the root of the matter, you're not going to be able to deal with this. And this is something that when the reformers were around in the 16th century, they were observing Christianity had a stranglehold on, was a kind of outside-in way of thinking about change. And they said, we need to get back to the heart of the matter because they went, when they read Jesus this way, they, they see that really until we deal with the heart of the problem, we're not going to get to the change that we're looking for. So when, the, when Protestant and Rome were debating, what they weren't debating was the outcome. The outcome they wanted was people who looked like Jesus and who behaved according to his law and things like that. They had a radical, fundamental disagreement about how that happens. And the great discovery, the rediscovery of the gospel, was that that happens through the good news of Jesus Christ. They read passages like Ezekiel 36 that talked very clearly about this new covenant that said, you know what? Israel has been fumbling around trying to keep God's law, unable to do it. And so God says, behold, I will do a new thing. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So that's where I get this kind of heart transplant imagery straight from Ezekiel. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. I will inspire you. And, and listen to this language. Move you to keep my laws. So at the level of desire, suddenly God renovates me through a heart transplant that he did. To renovate my desires so that my wanter changes. And he's describing that as this is the way it's going to work and always will work in Jesus. So Ezekiel is giving us a kind of heart-centered change. Think about Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3. Famous passage of where we get the conversation that leads to the most famous Bible verse of all time that's in every end zone, or at least used to be, uh, of every football game, John 3.16. Prior to John 3.16 are these famous lines that reverberate amongst evangelicals because it's like a calling card for how evangelicals preach the gospel at crusades in the 1950s and beyond. You must be born again. There must be a, a total death and resurrection, meaning that unless, unless you are kind of changed Almost at the cellular level, there won't be anything. So uh, another sort of clue that if change is to happen, it's going to be from the inside out. 
Listen to this final one, just to put a nail in the coffin of the inside-out thing. Look at Colossians 3, 1 through 5. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I don't totally understand that, but that's beautiful. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Do you see the inside-out programming of the way this stuff works? If there ever is to be any putting to death, it starts with the whole, where is your heart? Your heart is changed, and it is seated with Christ in God. Changes from the inside out, which means that all good worship that might actually change you, that might have the power to do something in your life, must change you from the inside out. And the last thing I'll, I'll end with before questions is, what has the power to enact that kind of change? I'm actually using the word power really deliberately. The Apostle Paul uses it a couple times. If you turn with me to Romans 1.16, a famous verse, it's where he uses the word power to offer us a very clear picture of how change happens. <clears throat> For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And I want to make clear in that phrase, because salvation isn't just a kind of conversion and instantaneous moment, because it is not only that you were saved or are saved, it is that you and I in our life are being saved, meaning we're in the process of change toward the time where we're glorified with Jesus. What this means is that this gospel, this good news about Jesus, is that changing agent power to take you there, to complete the process of your salvation that is happening all the time. And then one other verse, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 2, 4. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross, the message of the cross, which is a shorthand Paul uses for that same gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing because it sounds so dumb. It sounds so dumb that God changes you by giving you a gift. That you don't effort it. Everything about Greco-Roman culture in that day was about honor and worth being something that one rose to by one's noble behavior. And certainly you and I, all our concepts of change, whether, for instance, that's bodily change, do a bunch of stuff in the gym, change your diet, right? That's what change looks like, is me incorporating some sort of effort into a program. That sounds like wisdom, because that changes me. Or how about changes in my anxiety? Well, I've got to maybe change my medication, <laughs> or I've got to change my behavior or my schedule. I've got to do something active. And the shock of the gospel is that this change agent is a gift to you. And that message sounds like foolishness to those who are perishing, but the opposite is true. But to us who are being saved, okay, so there's some of that kind of progressive language that to us who are being saved continually, it is the power of God. 
for it is written. And then he goes on and opens it up. This gospel, this good news, is the precise power of God that actually changed you. So to summarize before I open it up to questions. The prayer book has a view for you that says the goal of a worship service is for us to come freshly, for our hearts to be open, for our sternums to be kind of cut and spread apart so that God can reach in, pull out that heart of stone that's been kind of calcifying over the week and offer us the heart of flesh that actually has the power to change us. That heart of flesh is the gift who is Jesus Christ in good news and words that give us good news. And that's the thing that changes us because we are people that are wired by God to be inside out change people. Tomorrow morning, we're going to ask the question of what is the gospel? How does justification clarify that gospel? And once we learn those two things, what do we start seeing in the liturgy that, in a sense, the gospel and justification are doing so that we can be people attuned to the kind of spirit-filled heart transplant work that God is up to? So, any questions? What, what are you all processing right now? What are you thinking? Yes. Mm. The question is, in worship services, is there a place where the beautiful liturgies of the past can coincide with the fresh expressions of today? Well, uh, funny enough, that's kind of a governmental question for Anglicans. Because uh, at, on one, um, you all are bound by the commitments of the tradition to worship through the prayer book. I think, though, if you read the rubrics of the prayer book, you get enough places and ways to maintain the full structure of the liturgy and offer opportunities for there to be those kinds of fresh expressions and fresh, um, fresh encounters with God. And I have found that when when that kind of dual faithfulness is always pursued, that those two things actually feed one another's health. Uh, you know, there are dangers in traditions unmoored from liturgies, I think, because they're liable to be, as Cranmer noted, kind of distorted over time. You can kind of wander if your worship service is carte blanche every Sunday in a way that liturgies give you a stability and a kind of confessional heritage and anchors. So in a liturgical tradition, those, aren't, those typically aren't the liabilities of a liturgical tradition. But the liabilities of a liturgical tradition are that those things can, can sometimes become rote, ritualistic, and dead in the heart. And I do find that the creative interplay between the liturgy as written that we enact and the way it's led and the way we receive it and even what we might call what fills the white spaces in between the liturgy. Those sorts of things I do think can have a role to play, especially in, in, uh, in music, because those are kind of optional choices. Uh, certainly in prayers that people can pray in between the moments of the liturgy as well. So that's a good question. I can sense your heart sort of saying, uh, I love the liturgy. I wonder sometimes if it grows a little cold in my life, you know, and I wonder if, if, uh, if by connection with fresh things, there might be a vitality there in worship for both of it. I don't know. Other questions? <clears throat> yes. 
How do you use the Book of Common Prayer outside Sunday's liturgy? Well, there's a real direct answer to that. Um, um, The original program for the Church of England, when Cranmer came up with the Book of Common Prayer, was to simplify all the complexities and take all the mystery out of what it meant to follow Jesus as an ordinary Christian. And the vision was people were (laughs) in their local parishes coming to church in the morning before work, praying together morning prayer, going to work, coming after work uh, and praying evening prayer and then going home. And that was the daily thing. And then on Sundays, you did Holy Communion together on a, on a weekly basis eventually. That was sort of the vision for the Scripture-filled life so that, according to him, you'd hear Scripture. It would kind of anchor your mornings and your evenings. That is so challenging in uh, suburban America, right? That's so challenging in our frenetic pace. I do wonder, though, if we're not at a reckoning point for our lives to say, gosh, I think I might have to give up a few things and maybe adopt a rule of life a little bit contrary to all the frenetic vibes of my culture if I want to achieve something like this. There might need to be some sacrifices. But the very simple answer is is, uh, joining the rhythms of the daily office, of praying morning and evening prayer. And I do think that there are ways for us to do that technologically or in person that can fit with a bit of our frenetic pace. But certainly, if you're interested in going deeper, a great way to start would be to grab one of the daily offices in the prayer book, whether it's morning prayer or evening prayer. And maybe once a week, twice a week, or every day of the week, praying one of them. Midday, those sorts of things. You can break away from wherever you're working or whatever you're doing to do something like that. And that would enrich and offer you kind of gospel pattern to your day. Other questions? Yes, sir. So the question is, having studied Augustine, being aware of Augustine's emphasis in confessions that have become part of especially Western Christianity's heritage of introspection as, a, as an important piece of our spirituality, um, is there a... Does that play into the Book of Common Prayer? Is that what you're generally asking? I believe so. You know, I, one of the... I do believe, especially when you look at the Collect for Purity the way we've looked at it, that there's an unassailable individualism that is a part of corporate worship. And let me unpack that a little bit. Unless the Word of God pierces your heart in particular, you're not really encountering God. And it's one thing, for instance, it's one of the reasons why at our church plant, especially early on, we... It was kind of awkward because, you know, whenever you're wearing name tags, sometimes it can feel a little awkward, especially if you're new. But one of the reasons we did this was I wanted to emphasize it when people came to the table. I wanted them to be able to hear their name spoken when they were receiving the body and blood of Jesus. Here's why. I could, as a preacher, stand before you and broadcast the gospel and say, Jesus Christ died for sinners. Or even I could say these words, Jesus Christ died for you. And you could still hear that as y'all or somebody else. But when you come to the table and you hear, Zach, Christ broken for you, you can't squirm that the gospel is there for you. And though God is about saving the whole world, the irreducible specificity of his salvation is every individual. So I do think introspection is important. Uh, I think that, and I think that that's what his theology of the Word of God is doing in the, in the Book of Common Prayer is, 
is that we're not just sort of reading the Bible so that we as one community can kind of communally celebrate and read the Bible. It is so that that piercing word of the cross would actually come to you by name and you have a kind of individual encounter with the wonder-working power of Jesus Christ. So yeah, I think our tradition of introspection is there. Now, I will kind of mention uh, how I think this gets communal at the end uh, tomorrow when I talk about Holy Communion and maybe some ways that future liturgies have helped tease out the corporate nature. But yeah, I would say that our liturgies are, are very introspective and even individualistic in this regard. And I think Cranmer does that purposefully because he believes that the word works like that. Question. Oh, yeah. There are all kinds of sites and apps that you can um, grab on your phone. So that you don't have to carry around a clunky prayer book. God forbid, you know. Um, you, can, you can have it right on your phone. And, it, you know, can push notify you and boom, you're in it and it's right there. So if there are other apps, I'm sure you'll let each other know what those are. But those are great. How much more time do we have for, for questions before we need to end? One or two more questions. Yes. Yeah, what I love about the Collect for Purity is if you're coming in with any sense of just trying to go through the motion, the Collect for Purity is like a, 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 a big stop sign. It just says, you need to get way more serious. This stuff's way more deep. Uh, if we're talking in theological language, if your flesh is trying to hide when you come into the worship, the Collect for Purity exists to, in a sense, pin your flesh against the wall and shine a big spotlight on it. And to basically say, you thought you were just going to you're just going to sort of squirm out of this or have another checkbox in your religiosity today. And no, Jesus is here to do business with you. It's because he loves you, but this might hurt a little bit as the scalpel comes out, you know, like, whoo, this is going to be difficult. So yeah, if you're, even if you're just trying to get into it, the Collect for Purity will always be your sort of smelling salts to be able to sort of wake up to go, oh, it's this that's happening to me today. Open your ears and I often find praying before a worship service in groups or as individuals, even just right while I'm sitting there before things begin, sometimes I'll just pray like desperate prayers like, Holy Spirit, help. Speak to me, God. Open my ears. Those kinds of desperate prayers that basically indicate if I'm going to get anything out of this, it's going to be because you sort of dig out these really tough, caked over channels of my heart because I need to hear you. And the Lord loves those kinds of prayers. The Lord loves the kinds of prayers that say, I can't do it, help. He, Jesus always honored those prayers above the long-winded prayers of the Pharisees. Look how righteous I am. I'm ready. I'm ready for worship, God. And Jesus was way more honoring of the person who says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, the publican, you know, uh, the one who said, I need you, not I feel pretty strong and good right now. Well, we didn't get very far, but I think we got to something really beautiful with the Collect for Purity. Tomorrow we'll talk about justification. We'll show some slides, and then we'll get into the liturgy and, and work our way through Holy Communion, the morning prayer.